Welcome to episode number two of our What the Hell series. First things first, if you haven't listened to the first episode, I would definitely go back and give it a listen because this episode and the subsequent episodes will build off of that episode. But just as a summary, because I know not everyone's going to go back and listen, we looked at some Babylonian myths that included some information on their beliefs of the afterlife. And we saw that the afterlife is a gloomy existence where ghost or the etimu lives under the earth eating dust in the house of the dead. We also looked at a couple examples in scripture that have a lot of similarities, but also some key differences to those Babylonian accounts. There are a few things to keep in mind as we continue down this road. Uh, the views in, of the afterlife that we saw last episode consisted of darkness, dust, uh, somewhat resembling an actual grave. There is no judgment, torment, or eternal bliss in heaven, and death is final. There is no coming back, and everyone went to the same place, including the righteous and the wicked. They went to some kind of underworld. In the early biblical account of Genesis, we saw this basic structure of the human being as being made from dust and divine breath. And we also discussed the biblical authors using common motifs and themes in the culture to communicate in a way that everyone would understand. So that was just a quick summary. Again, the goal of this entire series is we're looking at the development and the variety of views of the afterlife that we find in Scripture, a point that often goes unnoticed by your common church here in the Bible Belt, that there is not a singular view of the afterlife in Scripture. There is actually a development that takes place. So in the last episode... The few examples that I gave, if you thought to yourself, you know, Corey, those those examples are pretty vague. You know, you would in fact be correct. And you will also notice as we continue that just about every example is somewhat vague. And this is a theme. If you start actually digging around in scripture for references about the afterlife, there is very little detail, even within the New Testament when we get there. But there are a few interesting packs passages that uh, we can make some deductions from. A couple of them we looked at in the last episode, and we will continue on with some more examples in this episode. But a question that I found really interesting, why is the Bible so hazy about life after death? And this is a question that has been debated that I never, never really thought about. But Mary Douglas has a book. It's a famous book called Leviticus as Literature. She has this to say, she says on page 99, mediumistic consultation with the dead was to be punished by stoning. The dead could neither help nor be helped. Any form of spirit cult was rejected. Seers, sorcerers, witches, and diviners, any who crossed that divide between living and dead were denounced as evildoers. So the surrounding cultures all had ways of contacting the dead or worshiping ancestral spirits or worshiping the dead. And the Israelites wanted nothing to do with those cults, so much so that they actually stoned people to death for it. So how do you keep people from talking to the dead or worshiping their ancestors or not repeating the mistakes that they had made in the past and angering God? Well, you don't draw attention to the dead in your sacred writings, for one. You remove it. You make the writings vague or hazy, and you don't draw attention to the afterlife or the dead. Your attention should solely be on worshiping God, not these ancestral spirits. 
So I thought about this and it was a very interesting take on why the Bible is kind of vague whenever it comes to comes to the afterlife. Because um, I always wondered that. And as I started digging, I just ran across that that comment from Mary Douglas and it actually made a whole lot of sense. But that was just some extra information. I thought it was really interesting. But in this episode, we're going to continue on in the same vein as the last episode and look at a couple more examples of life after death that we aren't accustomed to thinking about in this uh, in this modern age, along with another story from outside the Bible from the Greek Empire sometime around the 8th century BCE. And it's actually the famous epic Homer's Odyssey. I don't think I could overstate how influential the Greek culture and language had on the world. Uh, classical Greek is actually considered to be the cradle of Western civilization. It's where this English-speaking world, that's where a lot of our culture actually came from in our language. And so with the expansion of the Roman Empire in the Hellenistic period, the Greco-Roman culture became the standard and had significant influences in philosophy, the sciences, politics, and art. And people like Homer could forever leave their mark on the world. And this included the culture of our biblical authors. And this is what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to start where we left off in the last episode. And we look, we are going to look at a couple of places in the book of Job. And there are some pretty interesting statements when it comes to the afterlife. Uh, one of them, Job 3, 11 through 19. And this is what it says. It says, why did I not die at birth? And why did I, did I not expire as I came out of the womb? Why did the knees welcome me? Why were there two breasts that I might nurse at them? For now, I would be lying down and would be quiet. I would be asleep and then at peace with the kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now desolate, or with princes who possessed gold, who filled their palaces with silver. Or why was I not buried like a stillborn infant, like infants who have never seen the light? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners relax together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. Small and great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So a couple observations here. Uh, Job is saying that he wishes he basically would have died at birth. It's kind of depressing, right? And then he makes a couple interesting statements about what it would be like if he had died all right we get this picture of death being some sort of rest or sleep and he's lying down it's, it's some sort of tranquility you know he's he's asleep and he also contrasts this the possessions of the kings and the princes he's saying that the things that they built on the earth they are now desolate because they are dead but also that the turmoils of the slaves and the wicked, they all end up in the same place and they're all at peace and they're all at rest. It doesn't matter if you're a king or a prince with all sorts of um, physical you know, palaces and riches or if you're a slave and your, your master is beating you and there's all sorts of turmoil in your life. When you die, you are at rest. 
right? And there's also a little statement about the wicked, that the wicked, you know, um, they may have been terrible people. They could have been tyrants, right? They're also at rest. And if you're thinking, I thought, I thought this exact same thing. So if you're thinking, so you can be a tyrant, do whatever you want in the world, and then you just die and you have peace and you're asleep like everyone else, even the person who uh, righteously lives his entire life, they have the same fate in the end. You're actually not alone. And some of the Israelites thought the exact same thing, and they started to question that. Uh, and that, I believe, is what drove to uh, a later development of rewards and punishments. But there's more to come on that. So just keep that idea of rest and tranquility in the back of your mind. And we're going to move on to another little section in Job. It's Job 17, 11 through 16. And it says, My days have passed, my plans are shattered, even the desires of my heart. These men change night into day. They say the light is near in the face of darkness. If I hope for the grave to be my home, if I spread out my bed in darkness, if I cry out to corruption, you are my father into the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? And my hope, who sees it? Will it go down to the barred gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? So I think everyone should kind of know the story of Job. It's the, the story of the righteous suffering man. And the book really goes out of its way to make sure that everyone knows that Job is righteous. And through all of this horrible suffering, he doesn't end up sinning. And he's still righteous. But notice, notice even Job is going down. And notice that spatial language. He's not going up into the heavens. He the righteous man is going down, and he even uses the word descend into the dust. And the language really imitates a body being lowered down into the earth, below the surface. And everyone descends down into the grave. They don't go up. Like I said, that's where God resides. But they go down into the earth, into the grave. And as humans, um, you know, we... The heavens are basically a place for divine beings. And we as humans, we don't go up in this instance. We go down into the earth, just like, a, it, just like a dead body gets lowered down in the grave, like I said earlier. But there are actually two exceptions to this. It's Elijah and Enoch. And they actually go up, and it says that they don't die. And we'll hopefully discuss this later, this idea of not going into the dirt anymore. You're actually going up into the, where God is. But again, the descent is not into some fiery place of torment. It's just dust. It's just darkness. Right? And we, we still get this sense of, you know, it's just, it's really nothingness. It's just sleep. Right? It's in the dust. And we also get this little interesting statement about the barred gates of death. So it doesn't let anyone out. I think that's the point. The, the barred gates, they're locked. So death is final. Death is the final chapter. You are locked in by these barred gates. And there's, there's no coming back. Not yet, anyway. I, I think the development of a resurrection comes later. But you're, it's final. It's this sleep 
it's a place of dust, it's a place of darkness, and you're you're locked in, right? And that's where humans go, and it's below, it's descending down into the earth. So you can kind of see that we got this same image as the last time of the underworld in Ecclesiastes, and there are lots of other places that we could go uh, and get the same image, but I don't want to belabor the point, and I'm excited to actually move on to uh, what comes next. But I think you get the idea, and it's not really what we think of the afterlife whenever we think about it. It's something different, but we're moving on to this next step. So we can't have a proper conversation about early beliefs in the afterlife without talking about the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28. And this story raises all sorts of questions. And the story almost seems a little out of place. But first, before we get there, I want to read a small section from Homer's Odyssey, book 11, and make a few observations. Um, just as a summary of the story, um, the Odyssey is about a man named Odysseus who is basically on an adventure home after the Trojan War. And after all sorts of weird happenings, he ends up in the underworld to get a prophecy from a man named Tircius. And while down there, he actually meets the shade of his deceased mother. And they have a little conversation. Um, so I want to read this part and then make a couple observations uh, about his mother's shade or soul. So this is what it says. In my heart... I thought about how much I yearned to hold my mother's shade. My spirit urged me to clasp her in my arms. Three times I moved towards her, but each time she slipped away like a shadow or a dream. The pain inside my heart grew even sharper. Then I called out to her. My words had wings. Mother, why do you not linger with me? I'd like to hold you so that even here in Hades we might throw our loving arms around each other and then have our fill of icy lamentation. Or are you a phantom, royal? Persephone has sent to make me groan and grieve still more. My honored mother quickly answered me, My child of all men most unfortunate, no. Dread Persephone, daughter of Zeus, is not deceiving you. Once mortals die, this is what's ordained for them. Their sinews no longer hold the flesh and bone together. The mighty power of a blazing fire destroys them. Once our spirit flies from us, from our white bones, and then it slips away, and like a dream, it flutters to and fro. But hurry to the light. Do it quickly. Remember all these things so later on you can describe the details to your wife. So notice a couple things here. When Odysseus tries to hug his mother, it's almost as if his hands go right through her, and he, he can't grab her. And so we immediately think of some sort of ghost or spirit, right? Some sort of immaterial being. And it, it's not made of any kind of substance. It's just immaterial. Well, that's not actually what's happening here. Uh, Bart Ehrman in Heaven and Hell says this, and he's talking about Rene Descartes, uh, which lived from 1596 to 1650 A.D., and he was a philosopher, and uh, Bart Ehrman says this about him. Descartes passed on to Western posterity the dualistic idea that body is made up of matter, but the soul is inherently immaterial. 
Before this time, however, it was believed that the soul was indeed material, but a vastly different kind of material from the realities we normally encounter through our senses. So according to Bart Ehrman, before the time of Rene Descartes, the, the idea of the soul or the life breath was still a material, but it was a sort of purified material that could, that could feel and it has senses. And so just keep that in mind because the biblical authors would have certainly held this view that the immaterial part of us is still some kind of substance. And I, I thought about this a little bit I wonder if this has anything to do with what Paul is referring to when he says that the purified body, a purified body will be resurrected. So, so the, the resurrection of the dead, you know, at the, at the end of days will be some kind of purified body. I wonder, I wonder if this idea uh, has anything to do with this belief of the soul is still made up of a material, but it's some kind of... Um, purified material but that's kind of a guess on my part it's just something I was thinking about but back to the story Odysseus's mother also says that like a dream it flutters to and fro and the it is obviously the soul so after you die she says you know the soul just kind of flutters to and fro like a shadow and something really interesting that I, I didn't actually read because I didn't think it was uh, important to read it, but in the story, in order for Odysseus's mother's shade to be coherent or to be able to remember and to be able to speak, she actually has to drink blood. So Odysseus pours blood out on the ground and the shade drinks the blood. And then at that point, it's almost as if she comes to life and she recognizes Odysseus and it's like her lifeless shade or lifeless shadow has this energy it energizes her it gives her life and but before that point she doesn't know she's just this this empty shade as she says like a dream it just flutters back and forth and it's really interesting because the it's almost as if the blood holds some sort of power or some sort of life and actually in leviticus 17 when talking about sacrifices it says that you shouldn't eat the blood of animals because life, the life of a creature is in the blood. I wonder if this is kind of a similar idea. This is a belief that the life of a person actually comes from the blood or the life of a creature actually comes from, you know, the blood that's in the body. But before that point, before she drinks this blood, she's just a shade, a shadow. It's just some lifeless floating entity that kind of floats about and is just there, just exists, right? But she's still made of some sort of purified substance. So now let's go to 1 Samuel 28. And this is the story of the Witch of Endor. It's a really odd story, and it's, it, it's kind of out of place, like I said earlier. But just in summary, in verse 3, we get this statement that saw through the mediums and magicians from the land. And it's really setting the stage for the rest of the story. Well, the Philistines are coming and Saul is terrified. Well, so what does he do? Right after he throws all the witches out of the land, he goes and he finds a witch to actually summon Samuel, who has now died. And so he dresses up, disguises himself, and goes to see this woman. 
who is a medium or a witch. It is one who talks to ancestral spirits. That's really what the wording is. But she doesn't recognize him, but he asks her to summon Samuel. Right? And this is what happens. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out loud, loudly. The woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. But what have you seen? The woman replied to Saul, I have seen a divine being coming up from the ground. He said to her, what about his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. So the first thing that she sees, right, is that it's Samuel and, and she recognizes him. And then at that moment, she somehow knows that it's Saul that's right in front of her, who, who has asked her to summon Samuel or to talk to Samuel. And she recognizes him because of, it almost seems by his robe and the fact that he's an old man. Maybe he's wearing, you know, that prof prophetic robe that he wore while he was alive on the earth and she recognizes him. So this is, this should immediately raise some red flags because this soul or this shade or this ghost it's wearing clothes in the afterlife and, and it re still retains that that physical appearance of an old man which is really unfortunate for me because i'm losing my hair and i was kind of hoping I'd, I'd get my hair back but according to the story i probably won't because i'm still going to look like that old man if if i make it that long but more importantly the woman says she sees a divine being Right, the word here in the Septuagint is Elohim, which is used for the word God, which is kind of just a generic term for some kind of divine being, like an angel or um, some kind of entity. Well, in, in Ralph Klein's commentary in the Word Biblical series, he says that the woman would have been expecting a ghost or an ancestral spirit. And, and that idea of this woman summoning an ancestral spirit is actually related to the concept of the etimu in Akkadian, which we talked about in the last episode. And the Hebrew word here is actually used, um, is, is parallel to the Akkadian word etimu or ghost. So we get that concept uh, popping up again here in this story. But that's not actually what happens, and that's not actually what she sees. She sees some sort of divine being. And... Unfortunately, I haven't found a good explanation for this. Maybe it's just his appearance. He seems more divine than a lot of the other ancestral spirits or ghosts that she's seen. There's not a really good explanation. I've, I've scoured commentaries and everybody just kind of uh, just kind of glances over this. And it's really it's really frustrating. I'm going to have to do some more digging on this. But but she sees something different, some sort of Elohim or divine being or he looks to be some sort of Elohim. But Samuel actually replies to this woman after Saul asks her what he says. And uh, Samuel says this, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? So the word disturb there is often used to actually describe the violation of a tomb, according to Klein. And then there's this sense of the, the, the dead is resting, and then the grave is violated, and they are disturbed or awoken, right? So we see this, again, this sense of sleep that we did um, earlier in the episode. And, and Saul says he's now been awakened. He's been disturbed from his rest, from his sleep, from his grave. 
But not only that, we also see the use of spatial language again here. We see the idea of Saul, or I'm sorry, Samuel, coming up from the grave, coming up from the underworld. Samuel is not already in the heavens, like we think a lot of times. He's in the ground. He's in a grave. He's in his resting place. He's in the underworld, often described as Sheol in the Old Testament. And he is coming up out of the ground, out of that underworld to speak. And the, an, a big difference between this story and, and the Odyssey is the idea of drinking blood, right? Or that the shade comes alive when it drinks the blood and it's given life. We don't see that here. Samuel immediately just starts talking and then he answers Saul later on in the story. So he's already aware. He's already conscious. He can already think. He already recognizes what's going on. And that's a big difference from the story of the Odyssey. So we see, again, we see this this story of sleep, of coming up out of the grave, up out of the underworld, and then and then this difference of, you know, Samuel is not drinking blood, right? So there's some similarities, and again, there's some differences, some pretty important differences. But this is one of my favorite stories. It's really frustrating because, it, like I said, there's not, it almost raises more questions than it actually answers. But again, the goal is just to see the diverse views of the afterlife. And this story is definitely different. And it's frustrating, but I love it. Thanks for listening to the Bible Belt Heathen Podcast. If you enjoyed the content, don't forget to like and subscribe. Now I will leave you with one of my favorite movie quotes from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now go away or I will taunt you a second time.